Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View. And Sarah, welcome back to the States. (laughs) Thank you. I am super jet lagged. (laughs) I think um, this happens um, when I travel for business, which like part of my trip was, right? So I went up to Canada and spent a few days with my family, cooked about a month's worth of food for my dad to fill his freezer and sort of just went through diet changes, took him for some walks, um, went through all his medications with him to make sure he understood not just like what everything was for, but like what to watch for and like what like what were the broader implications of some of these, right? So like he's on blood thinners, so he needs to know that if he cuts himself badly, he's not going to clot, right? It's like those types of, um, I don't know, that just seems like really important information to have in your head. Um, but he's, I mean, that, he was, uh, I think last week on the show, I I mentioned that he was dead for four minutes, but it turns out it was 10. Um and uh, I know 10 minutes of CPR and then he was shocked twice and his heart started again. He was rushed to the cath lab and had an angioplasty and then two stents put into his left anterior descending artery. So it was a widowmaker heart attack. And, uh, he had less than a 10% chance of waking up from the medically induced coma. He woke up and then he had a minuscule chance of not having like crippling level of, of brain damage that would have forced him into, assisted living or a long-term care hospital. He's fine. He like, he's, he's fine. Uh, I mean, he's still recovering. He's got broken ribs from the CPR and he's got pretty bad angina and he's going to have to do some major diet and lifestyle changes, um, in order to, you know, be able to maintain that independence and, and continue to recover. And so, you know, I've, I've sort of gone and, and, done what I can to sort of help him through that. And I'm at the point now where it's like, okay, now, now like it's his job to continue. And, and so he's, he's seems really gung ho and, and I just hope he can sort of continue this momentum. But yeah, he, I mean, just completely beat all of the odds, like absolute, uh, miracle, um, just amazing. And, um, and so I, I did that trip and it was like, my travel day got me in at the equivalent of um, four in the morning. So it was a really long travel day. And then I was doing these long days running errands and cooking for my dad and trying to fit in all of my family visits into just a few days. And then I went to Santa Rosa, California, um, where I gave a presentation as part of the Sutter Health Institute for Health and Healing mini medical school event, which was really awesome. Um, I mean, just a, a phenomenal crowd. So I did that in Santa Rosa. And I think whenever I do business travel, it's not just adjusting to the different time zone. It's adjusting to late nights just because those types of events tend to run late. And it just sort of shifts me out of my normal circadian rhythm. So I feel like I'm not just adjusting to Pacific time, but like Hawaii time. And uh, without the, you know, beautiful beaches. (laughs) And so now I'm like trying to get back into... Eastern time and routine and my, my body just, I don't know if it's, you know, that was a, a very stressful trip in a lot of ways, um, physically and a lot of emotional stress. Like it, it was, um, you know, I'm just really run down and exhausted when I just feel like my body's like refusing to adjust to Eastern time right now. So I apologize if this podcast ends up being, um, me searching for the right words for things all the time because my brain's on on low gear. We'll see. We'll see. It's it's early. I got my tea beside me. I should be all right. Well, I'm excited that your dad has Wolverine healing powers, and I'm hoping I inherited those genes. I was gonna say, I hope that they come your way. Yeah. Um, 
so I know that we have a sciencey topic today. I, mm-hmm. I will be your wingman, but <laughs> I hope that your tea is super extra powerful. Um, I'm actually done having children, obviously. Um, but this is a topic that I really wish that I would have known more about early on um, in my health journey, simply because I had a very strong thyroid crash when I was done nursing Wesley, which was the first time my body had not been pregnant or nursing um, for a decade, essentially. And I had also been doing very low carb paleo. And I think the combination of those two things caused me to have um, what ended up being like my first full blown thyroid flare. And um, I knew nothing about it at the time. Unfortunately, I knew you and we talked through some of the things that, you know, I could do to help heal my body. And I I blogged about it at the time. But I think that this is such an important topic for so many people who maybe don't even know that they have a thyroid issue. Um, But when they're pregnant, they just feel so great. Um, And then what happens afterwards? Or what is the mechanism for that? So I'm while it's no longer relevant to me specifically, it is a topic I'm super interested in, especially, for example, my sister who is um, thinking about starting a family, or for all of those people in my life who experience some of these symptoms, I can explain to them why and what they can do about it. <laughs> or you can be like, go listen to episode 371 of the Paleo View podcast. There you go. We cover it in depth. Um, yeah, I, I also, as I was, um, researching, uh, to answer Heather's question for this episode, I was like, oh, that explains it. Like it, it really, um, for me explained not just how I felt during my pregnancies, but also how I felt, uh, after birth and then after weaning, because similar to you, I was pregnant or nursing for six years because I only have two children. So I skipped a few years. Um, but, um, but I, I definitely, it was the health crash upon, uh, weaning of, uh, my second daughter, Mira, that was the thing that brought me to paleo in the first place. And, um, and all of the symptoms that I was struggling with were very much hypothyroid symptoms. Um, but before we talk about Heather's question, I would be remiss not to mention that this episode is sponsored by Everlywell. Uh, we love Everlywell because they provide at-home testing kits for a huge range of different uh, lab tests. So uh, most relevant to today's episode, they offer a thyroid panel that includes free T4, free T3, uh, TSH, uh, TPO antibodies. It's a, a pretty solid picture of what the thyroid is doing, but they also offer lots of other relevant testing, like a comprehensive women's health panel, a comprehensive men's health panel, a metabolic panel, a food sensitivity panel, vitamin D, which of course we've already talked about on an episode of the show. And um, the tests are really simple. You can, you know, they're either sort of like blood spot tests where you prick your finger and dab a spot of blood on a little piece of paper or you spit in a tube. Um, or they do have some urinalysis as well. You mail it in, you get your results um, through a, a secure online platform in about five days. So it's it's super efficient. Um, and for a lot of people, I know for me, um, most of their tests are uh, cheaper than my copay. So they're also quite affordable. Well, I think in particular with thyroid, a lot of people can get some basic tests from their regular doctor. I'm using quotations when I say that. <laughs> um, doctor. Yeah. But, you know, usually the results, at least the experience that I had, you know, the results like, oh, your thyroid's in a normal range. Like there's no further information, you know, in depth than that. And even if they ran a test with more in-depth information, they don't really know how to interpret it themselves. Mm-hmm. So I love that the... Th- Everlywell thyroid test gives people information on that. And then we've also had some really in-depth 
shows that people can go back and listen to about those um, thyroid results. I, I'm thinking there was uh, one with Mickey off the top of my head where I know we went really in depth. And on- we had um, Isabella Wentz on a show and we talked about thyroid hormone replacement with her, which was also we've, we've done it. We've done a key. Uh, I think we've done a couple yeah. thyroid themed shows. Yeah. So if you got the test and you were looking to understand those results um, yourself on your, you know, private um, result panel from Everlywell, those shows would be good to go back and listen to to help uh, interpret your results. So um, if you would like to get the test, we have the code the paleo view at everlywell.com slash the paleo view will get you 15% off. And um, if you've been feeling like, oh, this women's health panel and this thyroid panel sound like really great ideas, bundle them up, get them cheap, yeah. <laughs> learn your health and read between the lines. So um, I know that's what Sarah and I have done. And it's been super helpful. I is it weird that I have started stockpiling Everlywell tests? <laughs> is that is that, that a might, normal thing m- to do? Like might, a might be a, a new hoarder habit. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's not weird, right? Just to say, no, it's not weird, Sarah. That's of course, of course not. Did you did <laughs> okay. you get a did you get a good deal? That's what matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I did. So on to Heather's question. Hello, Sarah and Stacy. I love you guys so much and I'm so grateful to have you and all of the amazingly helpful resources you've created as I navigate my life with Hashimoto's. My question is this, I'm getting back to exercising after having a baby and I'm noticing that my heart rate goes wicked high, 180, sometimes over 190 when I'm really pushing during a cardio workout, even if my perceived effort is only a seven or eight. I've backed off the intensity, but I'm still getting readings into the 170s when my perceived effort is only maybe a five. Note, this is based off the readings on the treadmill, elliptical or bike or whatever, which I know aren't the most accurate, but until I get a new heart rate monitor device, this is all I've got. This is so frustrating because I want to push myself, but I'm afraid I may be doing more harm than good. Is the situation common among people with an autoimmune disease? All I can find online is that people with this situation should see their doctor to make sure it's not something else, but they never say what the something else is. Since so many things are affected by my Hashimoto's, I can't help but think it's playing a factor in this. Please tell me that this is something I can train back to normal or cope with in some way. I need to run for my sanity. Thanks, ladies. I do not understand someone who runs, but I do love (laughs) the nice words that she said about us. (laughs) Um, Um, But I, I get feeling like you can't do something you love and trying to solve that problem. So um, I'm going to just put it out there because I know you're going to jump into some science and some other things, but I'm just going to make the the general blanket statement here, which is we're going to assume that all of the things like sleep management and sunlight and um grounding and and all of those things are being incorporated as well because while that's a lot to put on your to-do list it's also important to helping balance hormones in a complementary way to some of the in-depth science stuff you're going to talk about right Sarah absolutely yeah I think um you know the thing that that I want to talk about is when I see those symptoms Um, the very first thing I think about is postpartum thyroiditis. And um, I'm going to talk about, because I I don't think we've ever covered it on this show. I I know that I've never written a blog post about it, but we're going to talk about how the thyroid uh, or thyroid function rather changes throughout pregnancy and upon delivery and what postpartum thyroiditis is and who's at risk for it. And I think um, it's important to recognize because it's relatively common, but frequently undiagnosed or takes a long time to get a diagnosis. And it's one of those things where the sooner you get a diagnosis and start working on treatment, the more effective that treatment can be and the lower the likelihood of developing lifelong hypothyroidism afterwards is. Um, So I think that um, there are other possible causes and 
Uh, I do definitely recommend that Heather go to a, a healthcare provider and talk about it, but also bring uh, thyroid testing results with her um, because that's that's my number one, like, ooh, ooh that sounds like hyperthyroidism. And that's one of um, the things that happens with postpartum thyroiditis, even in people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, is um, that the thyroid will go into a hyperthyroid state after delivery. And that's related to the hormone changes and what the thyroid is doing throughout pregnancy um, before it swings back into a hypothyroidism state. So um, what happens when you have excess thyroid hormone going through your body, which is what hyperthyroid means, and this can be, for example, uh, somebody with postpartum thyroiditis who's never had any kind of thyroid problems diagnosed before ever. That's actually the most common um, uh, person to be diagnosed with postpartum thyroiditis is somebody without a pre-existing thyroid condition. But this also applies to somebody who, say, has Hashimoto's thyroiditis and has been on thyroid hormone replacement. It needs to be incredibly carefully monitored before pregnancy, throughout pregnancy, and after pregnancy um, so that dose can be adjusted relatively quickly because of this high risk of postpartum thyroiditis. So number one, go get your thyroid checked. If you've got a great you know, functional medicine doctor, endocrinologist who will do a full, full panel, go order it with them. But that's also why we love Everlywell. It's a sponsor for this episode because of their thyroid panel um, that you can order through them. So that's number one, go get your thyroid checked. And that's because excess thyroid hormone causes heart palpitations and exercise intolerance. And it's due to this increase in heart rate and fatigue. Um, and the normal increase in heart rate during exercise is exaggerated with thyroid hormones. So that's exactly what Heather is describing where, um, you know, she's doing some cardio and instead of her heart rate going up to 140, it's going up to 170 or 180 or 190. And it's actually that a rapid heart rate is actually the most common sign of hyperthyroidism. So it is like absolutely a classic sign of, of postpartum thyroiditis. But to back up, I think in order to understand where postpartum thyroiditis is coming from, it helps to really understand what the thyroid is doing during pregnancy. And I think we've talked on this show before about the shift in the immune system. And that shift in immune system, for some autoimmune diseases, puts it into remission during pregnancy. For some autoimmune diseases, can actually make it flare during pregnancy. And, and that's because what's happening in the immune system is it's shifting in order for the body to not learn to attack the fetus, right? So it's it's really changing um, changing modes. It's not really suppressed. It's it's more that it's sort of shifting, and uh, you know different types of antibodies aren't being produced. It's just kind of a, a it's just like turning a corner. Um, but the thyroid is also changing as a result of pregnancy hormones, and this is normal. It happens in all women. So it's a normal response to the um, hormones that are produced during pregnancy. And it's actually really important. So during, so thyroid hormone, we think of it as adults as being our main metabolic control. That's why so many of the symptoms relate to metabolism, right? So like symptom of hypothyroidism is uh, fatigue, right? Exhaustion, um, unexplained weight gain or inability to lose weight, symptoms of hyperthyroidism is um, jittery, right? F like feeling almost anxious even, um, and often unexplained weight loss, right? And it's because thyroid hormones control metabolism. But one of the things they also do is they control development, um, actually through uh, birth and, and into childhood. And they're incredibly important for in neural development, especially. So that is the central nervous system, right? The brain, the spine, um, and, um, inadequate levels of thyroid hormone, um, have a, a very high correlation with, um, miscarriage and with stillbirth, um, and other complications. So having, um, Having a su sufficient thyroid hormones is really important for supporting a healthy pregnancy and a healthy baby. And, and during those first 11 weeks um, from conception uh, on, it's mostly maternal thyroid hormones that are driving development. At around 11 weeks, the fetus's thyroid is uh, sufficiently developed to start taking over producing thyroid hormones. And so from 11 weeks on to 40 weeks or 
give or take, right, to birth, it's the fetuses' thyroid hormones that are being produced that are the main contributor to development. So that early on in pregnancy, like really the first trimester, it's really, really important uh, for the mother's thyroid gland to be producing thyroid hormone. And so that's that's the system um, that is in place for every woman. And so this is um, influenced by two main hormones, the human uh, chorionic gonadotropin hormone, HCG. That's the hormone that's actually measured in a pregnancy test and estrogen. So those are the two hormones that are really driving this change in thyroid function. What happens is HCG basically um, it, it accelerates thyroid hormone production. It turns on the thyroid. And so it is increasing the production of thyroid hormone, which results in a slight decrease in thyroid stimulating hormone. So that is um, manipulating the feedback loop. So thyroid stimulating hormone is produced by the pituitary gland and controls how much thyroid hormone is being produced. Then when the thyroid makes thyroid hormone, it tells the pituitary gland that we've got, we've made it. Thank you. Thank you for the message. Um, and so the thyroid gland will make less TSH. So HCG is, HCG is stimulating thyroid hormone production and that will lower TSH slightly. Um, so that's normal to have a slightly lower TSH in the first trimester. It typically then returns to normal during the rest of pregnancy. Now, estrogen, on the other hand, increases the amount of what's called thyroid hormone binding proteins. So we often talk about measuring free T4 and free T3 when we're measuring, when we're doing a thyroid panel. And it's really important because upwards of 99% of the thyroid hormone in our blood is actually bound up with these thyroid hormone binding proteins, which renders them inactive. So it's only the free T4 and free T3 that are actually um, fully active. The other ones need to be offloaded and they can be, um, but it's, it's really the free thyroid hormones that are responsible for most of the metabolic control, right? Uh, development control, all of the different things that thyroid hormone does. So, um, what happens is we've got this stimulation of the thyroid to produce more thyroid hormone, which lowers TSH. And then this increase in thyroid hormone binding proteins, which binds up some of the excess thyroid hormone by way of sort of controlling its activities and really sort of like um, leveling out its activities so that it's not um, swinging up and down. Um, and so generally uh, what this can do is it can, um, in, especially in somebody with pre-existing Hashimoto's thyroiditis, you can end up suppressing thyroid hormone, especially in the first trimester. So it's very common for somebody with pre-existing Hashimoto's thyroiditis to require higher thyroid hormone replacement, usually a, a dose that's 25 to 50% higher, um, and occasionally up to double the dose um, throughout pregnancy. And what um, endocrinologists um, and what are they called? obstetric endocrinologists, so, so the physicians who specialize in this, um, typically their recommendation would be to um, really dial in thyroid hormone replacement dose uh, prior to a woman becoming pregnant, and then basically checking thyroid function as soon as pregnancy is detected. So as soon as you've got two lines on that stick, um, you know, go and get your thyroid tested. And that is because of this very, very early, uh, response of the thyroid to these hormones that turn on very, very early in pregnancy. And then typically what would happen is thyroid function would be very closely monitored throughout pregnancy and somebody who goes into pregnancy knowing they have Hashimoto's thyroiditis and they would get checked typically every six to eight weeks. Um, but even up to every four weeks, depending on how, um, how much they're having to adjust the thyroid hormone. So if they're seeing a more suppressed thyroid, um, they would test more frequently. So if the changes between tests are bigger, then they would test more frequently. Um, and then uh, uh, typically um, what would then happen is as soon as the baby is born, 
the woman should be directed to go right back to her pre-pregnancy dose of levothyroxine or whatever thyroid hormone she's on. So as soon as, um, as soon as the baby's born, and that's because hormones start returning mostly to normal and that stimulus for both, uh, increased thyroid production, but also increased thyroid binding hormone is gone and sort of normalizes, um, over the first few weeks, um, four to six weeks after birth. So, um, so that's like the standard procedure and that is done to avoid postpartum thyroiditis that is medication caused. So if somebody has uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis pre-existing and um, they don't have an endocrinologist that's monitoring them through pregnancy like this, what can happen is the combination of um, not having enough thyroid hormone throughout pregnancy can increase um, risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. Um, but then also there's this need to adjust sort of immediately upon birth to avoid going hyper, right? Giving too much thyroid hormone in that quick adjustment period after birth. And that's why this, this is sort of a standard procedure. It's also worth noting for women who are pregnant uh, with known Hashimoto's thyroiditis or suspected Hashimoto's thyroiditis, that um, the iron and calcium in prenatal vitamins um, inhibits the absorption of thyroid hormone in the gastrointestinal tract. So it's um, like standard operating procedure if you're on thyroid hormone replacement uh, to take it at least an hour before even drinking coffee, because even coffee can inhibit absorption. I actually typically take mine between four and five in the morning. I have managed to program my body to wake up naturally sometime in that time. And then when my alarm goes off at six, I can go have my coffee. And it's been at least an hour since I've taken my, my thyroid hormone. Um, and I keep, I do this, this is my big tip. I keep a pill bottle beside my bed and I put one pill in it. So because I'm taking it half asleep, I know I've taken it if it's empty in the morning. And that's, that's the way that I don't accidentally like take two or double up. Um, and that's also how I know that I took it and don't accidentally forget. So that's, that's my super pro tip for the team hashes people out there. Um, but it's, it's also really important that any kind of mineral supplement, um, typically actually shouldn't be taken within four hours of, of that um, thyroid hormone dose. So some endocrinologists will say two to three hours. Um, but if you are, um, pregnant and you are taking a prenatal vitamin, um, I would definitely recommend even taking that prenatal vitamin in the afternoon to really separate it from the, the thyroid hormone so that you're being as consistent as possible in terms of the conditions in which you're taking your thyroid hormone so that there's not variability in absorption. If you sometimes take it 20 minutes before your coffee and you sometimes take it an hour before your coffee or you sometimes uh, take your prenatal two hours later and sometimes take it four hours later, you're adding a sort of randomness of um, an effect that will um, inhibit absorption but depending on the timing, it'll be a little bit different every day. And what that'll mean is the dose of thyroid that you're getting will be a little bit different every day. And that's generally not a good thing. But what postpartum thyroiditis is, so it, it happens in this one situation of women with pre-existing Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but it also happens in women who had no idea that they had thyroid issues before pregnancy. Their thyroid was what's called euthyroid, which basically means normal levels of thyroid hormone. But what's really interesting is that studies have shown that women who develop postpartum thyroiditis very typically have high concentrations of antithyroid antibodies in early pregnancy. Um, and certainly antibodies are measurable uh, upon childbirth. And so generally, measurable antibodies would be diagnostic for Hashimoto's thyroiditis. What's really interesting is that in a fairly large percentage of women, postpartum thyroiditis is a transient event. So it um, you know, might need some treatment to control thyroid hormone levels for a year or even a year and a half, and then the thyroid will sort of return to normal. Um, what this 
can mean, though, is um, even higher risk of subsequent postpartum thyroiditis and a subsequent pregnancy and a higher risk of developing Hashimoto's thyroiditis uh, or like a more, uh, say, chronic hypothyroidism um, later. So we know that Hashis is particularly sensitive to hormonal shifts. So the most common times to develop Hashimoto's thyroiditis is puberty, pregnancy, um, all the things around pregnancy, right? So birth, weaning, and menopause. So um, if you've had postpartum thyroiditis and your thyroid has returned to normal afterwards, um, make sure that you're on guard in terms of what your thyroid is doing uh, as you approach perimenopause because um, you are at a higher risk of developing Hashis at that time. So um, what postpartum thyroiditis is, right? Thyroiditis is, right? Itis is the suffix that means inflammation. So postpartum, after birth, thyroid, a butterfly-shaped gland in your neck that produces hormones that control metabolism, and then itis, inflammation. And so it's this very acute level of inflammation, but does seem to be driven by autoimmune processes um, that are enhanced because of the hormonal environment after childbirth and the fluctuations that are happening, how the hormones are controlling thyroid, but also how the hormones are controlling immune function, right? So it's, it's that double whammy effect. And what happens most commonly is you get sort of two phases of postpartum thyroiditis. First, you get a hyperphase, which is what Heather is sort of describing in her in your question. So that means the thyroid is too high. And this happens um, even in people with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, so it's almost like a swing into Graves that's kind of transient, um, although it's not, it's not typically diagnosed as Graves disease. But this is a thing that can happen with Hashimoto's thyroiditis is this swing into hyperthyroid that's usually fairly transient, but it has a lot of really, like hyperthyroid is much more dangerous than hypo. Um, and hyperthyroid is definitely get thee to a doctor time. So um, what's happening in hyper is the inflammation is driving thyroid hormone production. And the symptoms include things like anxiety, uh, panic attacks, uh, irritability, the uh, heart pal palpitations and rapid heartbeat that I already mentioned, the unexplained weight loss that I already mentioned, um, increased sensitivity to heat, uh, fatigue, um, like shaking, like a tremor, and insomnia. And those are sort of like the classic classic signs of uh, a thyroid that is either over-medicated or has being some, is somehow driven into, into overdrive. And typically in postpartum thyroiditis, the hyperthyroid phase lasts um, sort of one to, to four months, um, typically. Um, so after delivery, it's, it's about that range. Although not all women will have a hyperthyroid phase, some will jump straight into a hypothyroid phase, which I think is what happened to me. Um, so then what happens is this uh, pendulum swing in the other direction. So the hyperphase completely, right, the inflammation is straining the thyroid, the stimulation to produce all this extra thyroid hormone is, is um, straining the thyroid, and eventually the thyroid can't keep up. I mean, this is sort of in many ways analogous to adrenal fatigue, but it's not being driven necessarily by stress, but being driven by hormones and the shift in an immune system um, that happens with pregnancy and childbirth. And so then um, what happens is this complete swing into an underactive thyroid and hypothyroidism. And so this has all of the classic symptoms of, I mean, literally crippling fatigue. Um, it, it can be. I mean, for some some people, it's just, you know, kind of not feeling energetic, but it can go all the way to can't get out of bed level fatigue, increased sensitivity to cold. So just um, getting the chills, having cold feet all the time, um, uh, you know, always being cold, constipation, unexplained weight gain, dry skin, and typically depression. So we typically get this like anxiety, insomnia symptom with hyper, and we typically get depression with hypo. But I think it's also really important here to mention that the Mental health uh, symptoms can overlap. So you can get depression with hyper and you can get anxiety with hypo. So, so don't let just the mental health um, symptoms um, drive an assumption about what your thyroid is doing. It's always important to test and, and really know exactly what the numbers are. So then the hypophase of postpartum thyroiditis 
um, basically begins as the hyper starts to, to go away. So um, it, it can start, um, I mean, anywhere between a few weeks after birth um, to even a few months after birth. Um, just like the hyper can sort of start about a month after birth up to four months after. So even four months after this whole, this whole cascade can trigger. Um, so then after the hyper that lasts, um, a couple of months, the swing and hypo can last, uh, six months up to a year, even a year and a half at most. Some women will have like, they'll never actually recover from the hypo phase. So they'll develop hypothyroidism as part of postpartum thyroiditis, and they will just have hypothyroidism afterwards. Um, some women will have only, I mentioned, we'll skip over the hyper and go straight to hypo. There are less uh, commonly, but it can happen that someone will have just the hyperthyroid um, and not actually have the reactive hypo phase. Um, but it's typically about a, a year to a year and a half if it's going to completely resolve. Um, so if it's not going to then result in a, um, sort of permanent diagnosis of Hashimoto's thyroiditis and hypothyroidism caused by this autoimmune disease. And so, uh, knowing that this is driven by, um, potentially underlying autoimmune disease, but Hashimoto's thyroiditis is the most common autoimmune disease. Uh, subclinical hypothyroidism would be a risk factor. Um, having, um, having autoimmune disease in your family, especially the autoimmune diseases that are sort of frequently co-occurring with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. So that would include type one diabetes. That would include celiac. That would include most of the, um, autoimmune diseases that affect skin, that would be a risk factor. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is a, a, a thing that happens and it's really important to be testing thyroid. Um, there are in the hyperphase, there are medications that can suppress, um, the thyroid gland. Um, typically, um, you wouldn't, uh, for postpartum thyroiditis, you wouldn't undergo a full, well, like the treatments that are often given to, for Graves patients are, uh, either surgical removal of the thyroid or radioablation where they put these little radioactive iodine, um, uh, little pellets inside the thyroid and they try to like selectively kill part of the thyroid gland with radiation um, and then um, hope that the leftover function given Graves' disease is the right amount. But usually then it's like a lot of testing and dialing and thyroid hormone replacement. If the thyroid is removed, then you're on thyroid hormone replacement for the rest of your life. And of course, like I don't need to say to our audience, but I'm going to say it anyways, that... Um, Graves' disease is life-threatening. Um, Hashimoto's thyroiditis typically is not, although it is incredibly impactful on quality of life. And so it's, um, it's really important to dial in diet and lifestyle, but also maintain a openness to conventional medical treatment and um, be willing to accept when conventional medical treatment is the best course of action and is a life-saving intervention. And I really want to say, again, for all of our audience, because I feel like I just can't say it enough, is that medication is not failure, right? So the need for thyroid hormone replacement when you've had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, right? That's an autoimmune disease that kills your thyroid cells, right? Like it's, it's attacking your thyroid gland. Your thyroid basically it's like a scarred organ after that. It may never, no matter how hard you're AIPing, it may never regain full function. Um, that doesn't make you a failure if you need some thyroid hormone replacement. I take thyroid hormone replacement and I take a whopping big dose of it because um, that's uh, what I need. Um, I probably had undiagnosed Hashimoto's for 30 years. So um, my thyroid gland is, is just basically thoroughly on strike. Um, so I, I want to sort of, yeah, I love ahead. that you said, no matter how hard you're AIPing it, like, I, I just want to mm -hmm. reiterate that to people, because this is one of those things, Graves, thyroid, any autoimmune condition, any health condition that someone might have, you might be doing everything right from a lifestyle perspective. 
and still need medical intervention, and this yeah. is a common theme on our podcast, that's okay. That's why modern medicine exists. Like you do you, you do everything you can do and feel good about that or do as best as you can do and still feel good about mm-hmm. that and have modern medical intervention because that's what it is there for. But it's also not an excuse to not do the hard work of diet and lifestyle. So uh, the need for conventional medicine doesn't get you off the hook in terms of working on a nutrient-dense anti-inflammatory diet and getting enough sleep and managing stress and finding opportunities for movement in your day. Um, I think there's this um, uh, human nature, right? Human nature tends to go one of two directions. One is, you know, really relying on medical intervention as a crutch and a Band-Aid and feeling like if we need these drugs, then what's the point of doing all of the diet and lifestyle work. And then there's the other side of the pendulum where we go full, super enthusiastic level diet and lifestyle changes where we want to, to push all of the conventional medicine out of our lives. Like, Oh, I don't need it. Cause I'm doing all of this diet and lifestyle stuff. And, you know, in reality, what is, uh, the healthiest approach is to prioritize the diet and lifestyle um, changes that we know are going to support lifelong health while ju- using conventional medicine judiciously and in an informed way. So we really know, you know, what we're choosing. Uh, we know what all of the options are. We know what all of the possible consequences are and we make an informed choice and we use it when necessary. And I think that, uh, you know, it's, it's the, um, uh, it's that, um, using all of the tools that are available to us, right? So it's it's basically trying to not um, not throw out anything that might be helpful just because it doesn't fit with a philosophy, and instead embrace both the medical and technological advancements that are available to us. I personally love my iPhone, right? Uh, also plumbing super, super fan of indoor plumbing, especially hot water tanks. One of my favorite things ever. I would live without a stove before I would live without a hot water tank. It's like so, so much my jam. Electricity Um, and air conditioning mm, happens to be a favorite of mine. Yeah. I, um, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, humans have, have invented some really, really awesome things, including some actual life saving you know, medical interventions, medications, um, surgeries, you know, things that can make the difference between life and death. Um, or, you know, also, and very valid, can restore quality of life. Um, and so I think that it's really important to, especially in this conversation, because we're really talking about close medical supervision. We're talking about frequent thyroid testing, uh, which again is why you know, Everly Wells, really affordable testing, maybe a very, very good fit for anybody who's going through this, depending on what your health insurance will cover. Um, but it's, um, I think it's really important to, to say both that needing this close medical supervision, needing to take medication does not make you a failure, but it also doesn't get you off the hook and mean that it's okay to, you know, go eat all the fast food. I didn't hear a mic drop, but it happened in my head. <laughs> I I just was really proud of myself for not naming specific fast food restaurants and opening myself <laughs> up to a libel suit. So yay me on that one. Cause I was, I was tempted. I was super tempted. I want to thank you for all of your in-depth science and dose of reality there at the end. And um, what's been interesting for me on my health journey um, is I I have different thyroid symptoms than you. I technically have thyroid disease, but I don't necessarily call myself someone with Hashi's because I did not need medication at the time that I underwent a biopsy on my thyroid and um, all of the testing came back that with a lifestyle I was managing, I think I 
Not I think. I know that I need to retest, which is one of the tests that I am hoarding for Everly Well that I need to send away. Hey, you didn't admit to being an Everly Well test hoarder yourself. No, well, I'm not necessarily hoarding them so much as um, staring at it, knowing that it needs to happen. And oh, okay. probably I'm not the only person who does that, right? But I, I just want to like, put out there that there there is a variety of... Um, support and help that is needed. There's a variety of different health conditions and how they affect you at different times in your life. When I was lifting regularly, um, which is when I was going through all of these, the, the testing and all of the stuff, I had a, a biopsy on my thyroid because I had a lump um, and everything was fine. But it's, it's time for me to go through that cycle again. And probably because I'm no longer doing some of the um, muscular activities that I was doing before, that changes my health perspective. And I need to go through that again, even though I'm not postpartum anymore, right? So yeah. um, I, I just want to reiterate to people that it it's not necessarily something as linear as, okay, this is what I'm doing and I'm, I'm on that path because, you know, I haven't been pregnant or, you know, I'm not in that phase of my life right now. That, that doesn't mean that things don't change for people. So I think it's um, helpful and relevant for me. And therefore, I want to share it with you listeners to remember that it's it's not an all or nothing thing, and it's also not a linear path that once a, a certain thing is the way that it is, that it's over. Um, and so I appreciate your uh, consistent <laughs> reminder <laughs> to um, check on, on my health from a numbers perspective, because as much as I am um, a very logical, mathematical, numbers-based person in my lifestyle... Just in my mindset in general, um, I'm not very good at actually doing that testing. So I am grateful for Everly Well. I want to remind our listeners that if they too feel like they need to do a little self-check, um, that they can do that through everlywell.com slash the paleo view and you can get um, the thyroid panel, as well as all the other tests that Sarah mentioned at 15% off with the code, the paleo view. And we can be brothers and sisters in arms in our sending off the test. And um, no matter how nervous you might be for the results, it doesn't actually change what your health mm. condition is by avoiding testing about it. This is a, a, a good reminder. Point. <laughs> uh, yeah, I actually had that conversation with um, my brother over the weekend about, uh, we were talking about heart disease risk factors and he had mentioned something to that effect of like, I think that the results, you know, the testing would stress me out. And I tried to, to talk about, right. The difference between testing, right. Like, um, knowing you have a gene that's going to increase the, your risk of something, right. Like the difference between a test that would tell you that something bad is inevitable versus, the type of testing we're talking about is actionable information, right? It's information that you can take and make a change in your diet, in your lifestyle, in your medications, in the healthcare providers that you're seeing. Um, you can make a change to address, right? You can make a you can you can do something with that information that is really positive, and I think that that there's a really big difference between information that helps direct your choices or even just helps motivate, right? Just helps you stay on track because you have that data to support the necessity of staying on track versus, um, you know, something that's just going to, you know, make you want to throw up your hands because you're, you're now doomed for this. None of, none of this testing that we're talking about, and I would say none of the results that you would get from an Everly Well test in general would fall into the latter category. It's all actionable information, whether that's information you take to your healthcare provider and discuss with them, or it's information that makes you go, oh, I need to cut out this food or eat more of this food or get more sleep, right? Like those, those things can be, it actually can be really empowering information because it can provide us with um, not just direction, but I think there's... Um, there's a, 
um, a different kind of motivation that comes with seeing seeing a number on a page or a number on a screen that um, you know is that proof that yes I, I I need to make these changes and I I think that you know we're always talking about things that are going to improve our lifelong health and um, and in many cases potentially even extend our lifespan and extend our quality of life um, through our uh, you know elder years. Right. So I think that, um, I think that that was an excellent point, Stacey. I just wanted to add that, uh, information is always valuable, right? It is always empowering to have more information because it allows you to make a more informed choice. And there you have it. Double, Second mic double drop? mic, double mic drop. Yep. Sweet. Um, thank you again for tuning in to this week's episode of the paleo view. And Sarah, thank you for, doing all of the science while jet lagged. And um, <laughs> after your very emotional visit back home, we're happy to hear that everyone is well and healing and on their way to recovery. And we will be back again next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. <sighs> so I'm in a great mood. It's basically <laughs> what I'm trying to say. But you know how I'm going to channel it? I'm going to fire my lawn care company today. That's how, <laughs> okay. that's how I'm channeling. Because channeling, they've been doing a terrible job. And I talk to the technician every time he's out. I'm like, why are there so many weeds in my lawn? Like... You know, like I'm paying 50 bucks a month for you to fertilize my lawn. Why is there no grass growing? And it's a hundred percent weeds. I've been putting all the right stuff. I'm just like, can you put a note in my file that I want someone to come out and have a look at the weeds? Yeah, I can do that. No one comes out. So I called yesterday. I was like, I want the manager to come out and look at my lawn. I'm like, okay, well, I'll let him, I'll let Greg know. And he'll call you back to this afternoon. Didn't call back. I'm like, that's it. Fired. I'm going to call weed man. He uses all organic stuff. <laughs> hey, Sarah and Stacy, I love you guys so much, and I'm so grateful to have you and all of the amazingly helpful resources you've created as I navigate my life with Hashimoto's. Uh, did you hear that? I wasn't sure what that was. That was my phone that took Hey, Sarah and Stacy to mean Hey, Siri, and then told me that I am the wind beneath its wings. <laughs> <laughs> that Why? was how my phone replied. Did it, you program it to tell you that? No, or does it just love no, you? Because it just did that. It heard the first sentence of Heather's question. I'm a little and then upset. Said, that beep beep, you are the wind beneath my wings, is what my phone just told me. I'm pretty sad that my phone is not sending me love messages at this point. I don't know how to read this question without triggering Siri again. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.